This is a Federal News Network podcast. Reliance on the U.S. military special forces has increased steadily over the past 20 years. More operations using more people in more trouble spots. Auditors have found that the Special Operations Command has trouble with oversight of its command and control, or C2 structures. Partly, this is a data problem. For details, we turn to the Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Kerry Russell, who spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin. What we're talking about here when we say C2, we're talking about organizations. A task force is a common terminology, but there's a lot of different terms for it. But essentially, these are organizations that deploy overseas and oversee the operations of multiple Special Forces units and personnel conducting special forces missions. The time we were doing the work, there were around 28 uh, active command and control organizations or structures out there uh, all over the globe, primarily in the uh, Middle East uh, and in the Africa area. But the importance of the issue is that all of these task forces or what have you, these command and control structures, they all require personnel and resources to be assigned to them. And those have to come from existing units. So it becomes you know, really critical that the resources applied to these task forces are the most efficient, effective use of, of special forces uh, resources, which, as you mentioned, are, are, are limited and, and stretched pretty thin. In other words, the special forces has like a cabinet of resources and people come in and take things out of the cabinet. But it sounds like the left hand may not exactly know what the right hand is doing. And so things get either shortchanged or uh, something can't be obtained that's needed somewhere. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, for example, in order to staff a, uh, a command and control activity, uh, they often pull personnel from existing units, per- perhaps here at, at home station within the United States. And, and as those people are removed from those operations and from those operational units into those task forces, uh, that creates shortages on the home station side, which can affect the ability to train and prepare for other operations. So it is absolutely critical, again, that, that there be a good uh, transparency and accountability for how many of these structures are out there, how big they are, how they're comprised, what's, what types of skills are involved in them so that the special operations community can make the best choices in terms of the allocation of these scarce resources. And the allocation of resources then is for the command and control structures themselves, and is it also for the task and the actual firepower and human power for the task itself that is being commanded and controlled? Right. Well, it's all of that. You know, obviously we were focused here on the command structure and then those units that do the operations would then come in and out underneath the task force, for example, if that's the terminology you're using. But it's it's all of those things. And in some cases, we found that sizing these task forces is a challenge. And as missions change and the requirements change, the special forces community hasn't always been on top of modifying the uh, the task forces accordingly. So in some cases, we found where the, the task forces, basically these headquarters command units, actually had more personnel in them than the operators that they were actually controlling and managing. So there are situations where it does get out of line and they have to be reevaluated. Right. So the tail got bigger than the tooth, as they like to say. Exactly. Exactly. It sounds almost like a project management challenge. Yeah, I mean, it is in a sense, you know, when it comes down to it, it's a fundamental issue on data and visibility. What what we found is that the Special Operations Command doesn't keep good data on how many task forces are out there, what they're comprised of, what they're doing, and the numbers are involved in these task forces. And as a result, it's very difficult, it's difficult to manage uh, that aspect of it. And then to com- to make things even complicated, we had this conversation about what is it, what is a, a, a C2 structure? Essentially, they don't have good terminology for what it is. And so when you look at different names, whether it's a detachment or a group 
or a task force. It's hard to tell how big these things are, what they're doing, what kind of personnel are in them. And as a result, it makes it very difficult between that and the lack of data to actually manage that enterprise of, of command structures to make sure that we're optimized. We're speaking with Kerry Russell, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Did you get the sense that this lack of coordination and knowledge about the C2 structures could add up to less effectiveness of special forces for what it is they're called on to actually accomplish? Yes, it does create a challenge. As we talked before, one thing in terms of resourcing those task forces or what have you, they're, they're pulling resources away from operational units and the ability to prepare and be ready for whatever it is those other units might need to do. And then it's also taking up space within the theater of operations in terms of operational units that are that are there uh, and being able to effectively oversee those operations to make sure that they're that they're both efficient and effective in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. And how did you get this information? It was mostly, in this case, interviews, or did you look at documentation also? It was both. I mean, there have been some previous studies done. We obviously did a number of interviews with commands across the globe. Uh, and, and as we mentioned, because the, the Special Forces Command and community doesn't keep current data on how many there are, we had to go through and do a lot of digging in order to put this together. And we're not the first ones to, to do that. Other, other studies within DOD and even externally have come to the same conclusion that, that it's very difficult to get a handle on the current status uh, of how many command and control structures are out there. And there was a, a lack of, a, of an easy, easy set of data. So we had, to go, we had to go down and track it down. Sure. And did special operations leadership kind of agree with your findings? Yes, they did. They, they saw the need for it. And, and to give them credit, they've done a number of things, uh, both before and during our study, in terms of reevaluating uh, on an annual basis the requirements that these task forces or command structures uh, are supposed to uh, uh, accomplish, as well as uh, doing a, a baseline review that has resulted in the actual changing of some of them and the reduction of some of the control structures as well. But they did not at that time, we had done the work, created a, a, a way to collect and maintain that data and that visibility and that transparency. We made that recommendation and they agreed to do that. Right. So that's a pretty tall lift then. I mean, do they have the systems to support that? And do they know what it is yeah. they need to put into the systems so that that picture emerges? I think that's all part of it. I mean, they do have ad hoc data collection that comes from theaters. So as they need information, they are able to spin it up and collect it. It's a, mat a matter of institutionalizing some of those processes and systems. And there may be some changes as they go through in order to figure out how best to do that. And let me ask you this. Each of the individual armed services has its own special forces component. Even the Marine Corps has one. And you'd think they are the ultimate special force all in of themselves. But be that as it may, is this a cross-cutting issue then for Special Operation Command that's a purple command that draws on all of the armed services? That's a good question. Absolutely. Yes, that's correct. Because what the way it works is the individual military services, as you mentioned, will, will develop and maintain and train special operators, and then they will be assigned to the Special Operations Command. So having this, this structure in place is critical for both the, the Special Operations Command to manage its activities as well as the services to make sure that they're providing the right resources and that they're most efficiently using those resources. And to give you an example, one of the things we found was that there was a uh, a task force in the Pacific that had Navy special operators assigned to it, but yet the Navy, Navy Special Warfare Center oversees all the Navy special forces didn't even realize they had personnel assigned to this task force. And so it definitely affects not only the services ability to manage its special forces personnel, but the U.S. Special Operations Command and how they employ and use those personnel. And I guess we should answer a basic question, too. Does this issue only apply to the people assigned to a command and control structure, but also the equipment? 
Yes, it, it would be all that because resources have to be put into place, whether it's communications equipment or other logistical support equipment. But certainly the, the personnel are a key factor uh, in all this. Yeah, you Absolutely. can't go to a battle with just a banana in your hand, in other words. Right. It's pretty hard. Yeah, exactly. So it could come to pass that a commander for some other purpose could say, golly, I'm going to need these four helicopters. Whoops, they're not there. They're somewhere else. Yeah, there's always those those kinds of challenges, and and you know what we find too is that with respect to some of these these organizations, is they may have been stood up for a certain requirement that has changed, and what what often happens or has happened is units will transfer or come over underneath the the task force in order to do one specific mission, but then they get repurposed to do other missions while they're there. We've also seen that the task forces or the structures overseas have provided an opportunity to train commanders and how to work in task forces. So they provide training value. So in some cases, they're actually used as, as that purpose, uh, in addition to their own mission requirements that are being established. All right. So the recommendation then is there to get this all coordinated, get it into some kind of a data system, and then you'll go back and check in a year and see if they've done it? Yes, that's exactly right. Come up with a way to collect and, and use the data to manage those structures as well as create some standardized terminology. So when you see those structures listed, you kind of have an idea as to what they're for and how they're sized. Uh, we will follow up on those recommendations as we go and see how what progress they're making, how well they're doing towards that end. Kerry Russell is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy. Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a 
an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. 
looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. 
But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha. And thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.